media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. This morning, if you notice, we had several songs there. and it did. How many knew the first song that we sang together? Don't, don't be embarrassed to, to not raise your hand if you didn't know that. Like, I, I don't know that anybody, there's no hands, uh, they, they didn't know that. How many thought that that was a kind of an evolved song? Okay, okay, Allison did. Okay. Uh, that that was kind of a, a deep song, kind of an involved song, kind of, you know, it had some big words in it and had that kind of stuff. Uh, theologically, guys, that, that uh, song was, I mean, just solid. It's really solid. Now, as we went through our songs this morning, uh, it's kind of all the same theme about just resting in the finished work of Christ. And then we finally get to this old hymn that is very, very familiar to a lot of people, uh, and that is just trusting in Jesus Christ. And it's almost like there's just this simplicity of childlike faith. How many of you knew that song? Okay, a whole bunch. Now, I used that this morning, and this wasn't on purpose. It just kind of dawned on me as we were sitting there singing these songs, and our, we were listening to the first song. Uh, I think we were singing the, the last song. And say, so, you know, that's kind of where we are a lot of times in our mentality with the Christian faith. Some people are very technical. They, theology is really, 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 really important to them. They want to understand it before they can really apply it and, and go out there. And I'm one of those that thinks that theology is really, really, really important. My wife would have appreciated as we sang through those songs this morning much more that last song, just the simplicity. There's things in theology that she says, you know, I, I know I know, probably should really, really be involved in that. But I just know that Jesus did this, and, and she likes that simplicity of that. Who is right and who is wrong? Neither one is wrong, I don't believe. Hopefully we both have some rightness to us. Do you find yourself somewhere on that gamut between those that really love the intensity of theology and the understanding of all these things, and then other people, man, I just want childlike faith. I just love God. I'm so thankful that he gave me Jesus. And, and that's kind of the, the, the start and the finish of, of your spiritual journey. Well, guys, this morning, I use that as illustration because it's one of those things that when we come into this whole understanding of faith and grace and works, things can get a little bit complicated. It's been a debate ever since Christ came along because Christianity is, as I uh, understand, the only religion in the world, the only uh, spiritual endeavor in the world that truly is grace-based, that we believe that the only way that we come to Jesus Christ is not through our works, but through what Jesus has done. And every other world religion has some mixture either totally dependent on works or at least somewhat dependent on works. And so we stand alone. We can only imagine that that gets a little confusing then. So what if you have a neighbor that says, no, you have to do these things in order to earn your salvation, that is to earn the right to be right with God? And you go, no, you don't have to do anything. It's just a a simple gift. And so this has been a matter that's been debated from the very beginning, both in Jesus' time and then immediately following in the early churches. This whole thing about faith and works. Which one is it? We say by grace Saved by works. Well, I believe that the Bible is crystal clear. I don't believe that we have to guess. I don't believe that, I really don't believe that we have to debate back and forth. But I think that the application of that is where we kind of begin to trip a little bit. This battle, this debate 
seems to be kind of flowing back and forth with, you know, in time and eras. Um, and people struggle with it, but the Bible makes it clear of the role of each one of those, both in the role uh, of living our lives and the role of salvation. The consistent teaching of the Bible, guys, if we just went Genesis to Revelation, the consistent teaching of the Bible is that we are saved by grace through faith and in whom Jesus is and what Jesus did. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Is that pretty crystal clear? Is it fuzzy? Is it gray? Or would you say that's pretty black and white? For the most part, this is kind of our go-to verse, and I could give you probably at least 50 others, if not more than 50, that just to me make it crystal clear that the only way that we can be right with a holy God is by his doing and what he has accomplished through Jesus Christ. Uh, Here's an illustration I heard a long time ago, and it made sense to me, that if we filled up the entire United States with salt, you know how tiny salt is, and we poured salt all the way across the United States, and it was 10 feet deep all the way across the United States. That's a lot of salt in it. That's a lot of granulars of salt. And then we went up in an airplane, and we had just one piece that we had to add to complete that. That one little piece, in comparison to all the other granulars of salt, would almost be insignificant, wouldn't it? One out of trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions. Well, well folks, we can't even add that one piece of salt, that one granular our salvation. Christ has done it all. So, so it's not, to me, it's very, very clear. But now, here's the thing. When we begin to look at that, why it's kind of uh, grievous to us is because there's a part of us that really want to participate in something. We want to earn something. There's a part of our fallenness, there's a part of our mentality that says, okay, let me help you. Remember, just even as a little kid, me do? You know, your little child, me do. There's something within this mentality that we want to help. And yet, look what the Bible says in Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, look, you have fallen and you weren't just a little bit far away. You were completely, you fall short. In other writings, Paul would say that you were dead. He didn't say you were kind of comatose, or you had a little bit of a snivel, or you had a little bit of a cold. We were dead, and Christ made us alive. To me, the teaching is really crystal clear. So at this point, I could, again, use a multitude of other scriptures and go on and on and on with this point of salvation being only through the work of Christ. So why do we get confused? Because when we come to a place in our lives when we have trusted Christ as a Christian, then sometimes we get really sloppy with that grace. Some people say that we cheapen that grace. Well, if God saved me, then I can just do whatever I want. Is that a modern thought? Is that a modern philosophy? It is, but do you know that it existed even in the early churches? Paul had to warn even the first century Christians not to cheapen this grace. Remember back in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 when it says that we're saved by grace through faith. 
not ourselves. We can't boast about it. Do you know what verse 10 says? It's, it's to me my go-to verse when it talks about this high calling. Now that we are a Christian, how would how should we live? Look what it says, Ephesians 2.10. Now remember what 8.9 said. Totally dependent on the work of Christ. Right afterwards, the very next verse, this is what Paul says. For we are his workmanship. The Greek word that we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Anytime you see that word walk in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, it's talking about a pattern, a direction, going somewhere. It's talking about lifestyle. When it talks about walking, it's a synonym for the way you live your life. Because usually when you walk, you're not standing still. You're actually going in a direction. You could be going in this direction. You could be going in that direction. So walk is used throughout the New Testament, especially even in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament, to talk about a direction of life. And here it says, okay, God has prepared for you these good works in Christ Jesus beforehand. Even the good things that you would do, it's not really you thinking them up. God's already prepared you. He's given now His very Spirit and his the the way of uh, of empowering you to be able to do this, walk in them. Now I lead with that this morning because when we come to Philippians chapter one verse twenty seven, our next verse where we left off last week, we see a phrase that Paul uses that I think could be misunderstood. To me, it's crystal clear. Not because I'm smart, not because I train, or because I you know, can read the studies and what they say about the Greek. No, because I, I kind of get the mindset of where Paul's coming from. But in case you could get tripped up, or a friend or a neighbor or somebody, maybe one of your children could get tripped up, let's make sure that we have clarity. Look what Paul says to the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, he's going to go on in, in Philippians 2. We'll see it in several weeks from now. He's going to use the term, work out your salvation. Uh, work out your salvation? Live a life worthy of the gospel? Does that kind of sound like works? Does it sound like an expectation? Well, if it is an expectation, then, then how can we, you know, what does that mean? Do you see how that part could be misunderstood? See the part that says, let your, the manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? Some would say, okay, you, what if I don't really act like a Christian? Can I lose my Christianity? Others might be able to say, you know, something like, well, you know, did I kind of halfway participate in my salvation? And the answer to both of those are no. But I don't know that you would be able to draw it just from this one phrase. What you draw it from is the rest of the scripture. Guys, whenever there's a confusing part of scripture, this, this is good Bible study, okay? Whenever you come across a phrase and you're going, oh, I don't know really how to best place that to interpret that. Always let Scripture interpret Scripture. You, you can go to a pastor, you can go to a friend, you can go to, to some well-known person, but let Scripture interpret Scripture. I was talking to Andy this morning, and, and I, I used this number, and, and it could be debated, 
I'm sure. Uh, I think that 99.5% of the Bible, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, is crystal clear. We're the ones that kind of go in with this kind of pre-notion of, well, I wanted to say this, and so can I take this one phrase or this one verse or even a part of a verse and twist it to kind of get to my endeavor or my end that I want? Have you ever done something like that? I mean, it's, it's not too far off from what we used to do as kids. I mean, if I wanted to go somewhere, a place on a Friday night or a Saturday night, I kind of knew which of the, one of my parents, my mother or my father, I could be, um, if you want to say, get my way. I, I could knew which one would be, oh, yeah, go. I knew how to go and kind of twist the circumstances of the situation to get a desired end. And sometimes we do that with Scripture, guys. Well, we want to prove that something is okay. We want some allowance, perhaps, in our life. And so we read, oh, you know, the Bible says, and we just quote a part of a verse out of context and not even the completion of that verse. I truly believe that if you look into the Scripture and you are desirous of knowing God's truth, that He's such a good Father, He's such a revealer, His very nature is one of revelation. He didn't have to give us his word. He certainly didn't have to come and dwell among us and take on humanity, but he did. Why? Because he revealed himself. God has a revealing nature. And I I just believe that when we get into the scripture, it is going to, we're going to see the truth of God revealed. And this is one of those things I think we need to nail down. Now let's try to understand the context of what Paul is saying. In the first 26 verses that we have in our Bible of Philippians 1, basically here's what Paul is doing. Hi. He's basically saying hello. He knows these people. He loves this church. And they were asking, how are you doing, Paul? We heard that you're in jail, that you're in prison. And, you know, are you eating okay? You know, some of his, you know, spiritual moms, are you eating your vegetables? You know, they're, he, they're just checking on Paul. And he responds, I'm doing okay. In fact, I'm doing more than okay. If you remember the sermons from the past couple of weeks, he said, this is actually all this suffering. What you see as suffering is actually to glorify God. This is actually a good thing that's happening to me. So the first 26 verses of Philippians, it's just an introduction. It's just Paul saying hi and giving them a kind of an update. Verse 27 is when he starts to teach or what we would call preach. This is when we begin to see some exact wording that says, okay, I command you to do this. And here, he, as he begins to instruct them, he begins to tell them how to live their daily lives as Christians, not how to become Christians. Let me say that again. When he starts in verse 27, if we take it in context, he's writing to the church of Philippi. He's writing to Christians. Okay? He's now telling them, how do you live this Christian life? He's not trying to explain to them how to become a Christian. It's really important that we understand that. Because all of a sudden, instead of giving instructions how to get to God, we see these instructions, that, these commands that he's going to give. How do we live for God? Do you see the distinction between the two? It's In one way, you're going, Bobby, that's so simplistic. To me, it is. But it's that basis and that understanding that gives us the ability to correctly understand what he's about to tell us. And he uses this term, worthy, as a direction. 
It's the same way that you and I, if we were trying to give somebody directions how to get to the school or something like that, they go, okay, go out here, go straight across on gun strings, and then take a left, take a right, or do this or that. We would give directions, and we would use words like turn left, turn right. That's what Paul is doing here. How do we live the Christian life on a daily basis? And he's simply going, okay, turn left, turn right. He's giving directions of how to live this life. And he uses this term worthy in a directional purpose. It's a term that he used a lot with Christians and with churches. Uh, look at Ephesians 4.1. Okay, a whole different church. And yet look what he said. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Does that sound very similar to what he just said to the Philippians? Okay, look in Colossians 1.10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing the knowledge of God. Sound kind of familiar? Look what he wrote to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory. It's a repeated phrase that he uses time and time as he writes to who? To churches. And they are, hopefully, (laughs) Christians. This is not instructions on how to become a Christian. This is instructions to Christians on how we are now to live. If you are here this morning and you're a Christian, you put your full faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. He's addressing you. If you haven't done that, then, then we would love to tell you about, you know, how do you become a Christian? And why we would use some of the same kind of uh, understanding, we'd have a different conversation. Because we would be talking about grace, 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 grace. Grace, grace. And then we'd throw in a little bit more talk about, guess what? Grace. <laughs> but now, these people are Christians, And he's given them direction of how do you live the Christian life. And he uses this word worthy repeatedly to the churches to say, here's the direction that you walk in. Is he saying that we could ever pay back Jesus for all that Christ has done? Is he using worth in that sense? No. He's simply saying, here's the direction to live. If we go back and we look at the context of each one of those passages we just looked at, we would, Paul never even begins to insinuate that we are saved by works. No. All he is saying here, walk, live, go in a direction. What direction do we go in? Folks, this is really, really important in a day when we have placed so much weight on emotions. Would you say that we are as emotional as a people and give weight to emotions today as much as any time that you would think in human history? I mean, there may be some other times that people were emotional. I'm not saying that all of a sudden emotions developed in the last century or millennial. I'm just saying today, man, we give full weight to emotions. Everything is about how I feel. Why Right and wrong is interpreted not by clear truth being taught, but, but how I feel about it. And if all of a sudden, if I believe this thing that isn't true, but I believe it to be true, and I really believe it enough, and my emotions want to agree with that, we live in a culture that very much says, okay, 
what's true for and that just doesn't go with God guys believe it or not God has not left it up to you for each one of us to determine our own path of truthfulness he's given us truth in his word because now let's go back to what we're talking about. What is the context of this? All of a sudden, Paul's talking about here's how you live, here's how you walk, here's the things you do as a Christian. This is the direction that you live your life. If all of a sudden that's open to emotions, oh my goodness, can you imagine how we would all interpret that in a different way? Can you imagine how each one of us would, would begin to just have our own version? That's what Paul does here. At the same time, let's not make the mistake that somehow take this word worth and believe that our salvation and even the continuance of our salvation, our security in Christ, is based on works. It's not biblical. Neither one of those philosophies is biblical. At the same time, have you ever had one of those days that you asked that question, am I even a Christian? Have you ever one of those days you're just disappointing yourself, maybe your actions, your attitude, or maybe something else, and you just want, man, I don't know that a Christian would act like that. Have you ever had one of those days? Believe me, pastors have a lot of those days. That we don't just ask, okay, man, why am I even a pastor? If I'm going to think that, do that, act like that. Am I even a Christian? Have you ever been around somebody that was so full of God's Spirit and so alive in Christ that it did make you even consider, I don't know that I'm even a Christian. Man, that guy's just like walking five feet off of terra firma. I mean, he's just like, you know, he lives his whole life about five foot uh, on top of the rest of us because he's just so close to God. There's a lot of things that can begin to, to make us confused, and that's why Paul wants to bring clarity. So let's go back to verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I, I may hear of you and that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Question. Do you see direction in that verse? Is Paul pointing in a direction? And what are some of the obvious things, and you can say this out loud if you want to, what are some things that would show, okay, yeah, if you're walking in this direction that he's talking about, what would it look like? Just pick out some things. Standing firm. firm. Okay, you're not just going to be, every wind of doctrine is not going to come and blow you away. You're going to be standing firm. Great. What else? Unified. Unified. Even people that think differently from you? Yeah, you're going to be unified in what? In one spirit. The gospel spirit. The gospel is going to bring us together even though we are all very unique and different people. Anything else? Yeah. Just the the very point that he's trying to make is this worth of the gospel is going to come from Christ and he's going to give this this heart, this mindset for that. One mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is what unifies all of us together. When Paul writes, only let the manner of life be worthy of the gospel, in, in the Greek, it's a command. In the Bible, we have indicatives and imperatives. 
And, and I'd love for you to know the difference between those two because I think it's helpful when we do Bible study. But an imperative is a command. An indicative is something that God has already done before he commands us. Anytime that we find an imperative in the Bible, do this, it's almost always, always preceded with an imperative. And that is, this is what Christ has done, therefore, go and do this. Is that a familiar pattern that you see in the, in the Bible? It's in the New Testament? Yeah. And, and so we have these imperatives. Christ has done this, God has done this, therefore, go do this. Here, this is a command, and it's based on what he's already kind of stated or that they would have known, that Christ has died in their place. The word play there in that command doesn't really come out in the English, but it would have come out to the Philippians. In the English, we don't quite get it. Paul uses the word, uh, the NIV says, conduct yourselves. Uh, in the ESV, conduct yourself, or let your manner be the, that's the main verb of it. But the Greek here word that he uses here is basically behave as a citizen. Now, why is that a big deal to the Philippians? What would that have meant to them to behave as a, as a citizen? What did we say previously about Philippi and that whole area? What citizenship do they have? What is the, the, the culture that they fully are embraced in? The Romans. It's a Roman city. It's a Roman culture, Roman dress, Roman laws, Roman everything. To those that may know a little bit about the Bible. Was citizenship really important to the Romans? It was very, very important. In fact, even to Paul, was he a Roman? Yeah. And remember one time they were arresting him and they were treating him in such a way. And Paul goes, look, I'm a Roman. Don't I get at least this? And the Bible says there in Acts, it says, and they were afraid because they did not realize that he was a Roman citizen and they had just invaded some of his rights. This was understood, folks. This was a big deal to be a citizen of Rome. Paul plays upon that in his wording here. He says, conduct yourself, live away, go in the direction that shows that you understand where your citizenship is. Elias Alonzo is not able to be with us this morning, but I did ask his permission to share this. Um, uh, his wife is not feeling well, so they're worshiping from home tonight uh, or this morning. But I asked him if I could share it. Last week, he, he became a citizen of the United States. And he said, this is, this is my third citizenship. He said, I was born in Guatemala. I'm a citizen of Guatemala. And then I became a Christian. And my citizenship is in heaven. And he said, now I've gone through the formal things to, to become a citizen of the United States. But he knows that his, his full citizenship is, is in heaven. And so we were just sharing last week. And I was just so excited for him. Question. Do you think that Elias has a weight, a grasp, and an understanding of the importance of citizenship more so than maybe even some people that were born here and have never considered it? If you've ever seen all the tests you have to do and all the kind of things that you have to do to become a citizen of the United States, you would probably answer yes to that. That's what Paul's addressing. He, that's why he uses this illustration. Do you know where your citizenship? He said, walk worthy of your citizenship. Christian, 
Where is your citizenship this morning, theologically? Heaven. Heaven. It's not something that we're waiting to get when we die. The Bible makes it very clear. The New Testament writings are very clear that the minute that we become a Christian, we are a citizen of heaven. We are God's. We're not awaiting that citizenship. We're not going through the trials to see if we make it. We're not trying to pass a test. That because of the finished work of Christ, when we trust the work of Christ to make us right with a holy God, we, at that point, when we become a Christian, are a citizen of heaven. Would you agree that that's what the Bible clearly teaches? All Paul is doing here is, okay, honor your citizenship. When he says, we, we live a life, a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ, he's not saying, okay, earn your salvation. This isn't a passage about how to become a Christian. It's about how to live a directed life because you are a Christian. And what we don't see in the English, but what comes out in the original language, is that he plays upon this whole idea of citizenship. That would have really set home with the Philippians. Paul was very clear that we do not earn this citizenship, but it's a gift. But we are to live it out. I believe that's very important for us not to water down any of these truths. Folks, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, not just believe that He exists. There's a lot of people that believe that Christ exists. They'll say, yeah, He was a historical factor, or He was a great teacher, or He was this. But they haven't put their faith and trust in His work. Could you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross, and yet still not put your faith and trust that that's what makes you right with the Holy God? Yeah, you can have knowledge without that application. And so in one way, we want to know without a doubt, let's not water down this truth whatsoever, that the only way that we come to Christ is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Is that crystal clear? So that nobody will accuse me of heresy. But let's not water down this other fact. That now that we are a citizen of heaven, not just when we die, but immediately at its salvation, that God wants you to live in a manner that is worthy of that. Would you agree that that's what the Bible teaches? Just looking at what, what has been said this morning. I love what John MacArthur said about the Greek word worthy in verse 27. Axios, that's the Greek transliteration. He said, axios, worthy, has the root meaning of balancing the scales. What is on one side of the scale should be equal in weight to that which is in the other side. By extension, now please read every word here. The word came to be applied to anything that was expected to correspond to something else. Is John MacArthur saying that that because we get salvation over here, we need to do the works that are... uh, You know, that that kind of balance that out. That if God saved you this much, that you have to work that much. Is that what he's saying? No. No. What he's saying is this Greek term that has a picture of scales, that when Christ has done for you this, that we should live a life in response in similar way. Does that make sense? Guys, in a day of Christian convenience... Please understand that 
God doesn't call you into a life of convenience. He, he calls you into a life of commitment, guys. I'm a grace guy. I'm, I'm reformed in my theology. Grace and grace alone, okay? You're never going to get me to say that works were in any part of my salvation. Not my past works, not my present works, or not even an anticipation of my future works. God didn't save me because he said, you know, I'll clean him up a little bit and I'll use him. No, none of that. None of that was in consideration. God loved me. He chose me. And he saved me by the work of Christ in Christ alone. Given that, given that, please, let's not water down this high calling of a Christian. Well, you know, it really doesn't matter how I live because I get to go to heaven either way. You've missed the whole point of Christianity, guys. You've missed it. I've missed it when that thought, well, you know, God will just forgive me so I can do this. Haven't we all said that in our Christianity before? That this grace so abundant, so amazing, is so overwhelming that somehow we just take this grace and, and then all of a sudden we're going, you know, I'm just going to bathe in grace every day. You need to be bathed in grace every day. But it's a high calling, guys. What if in my marriage... I've been married 38 years now. What if in my marriage I say, okay, now that we're married, I can pretty much do whatever I want. Because I expect you to be a person of grace. Bad illustration because, again, we're, we're dealing with humans and human relationships rather than God in his perfection and all that. But, but I think you're going to get the drift. How abusive of her love that would be to say, well, you know, I do whatever I want. Do you believe that there's a high calling in marriage? For the Christian, do you believe that there's a very, very high calling in marriage? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If that's not high calling, I don't know what is. He didn't just say, hey, go earn a good income, be good, help out with the dishes once in a while, and then keep the grass cut. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. The highest of calling. How many guys, guys, how many of you have loved your wives consistently as Christ loved the church? Not a single hand. And I'm sure not going to put my hand up. That's why we need grace and continual grace and sustaining grace. But does that take away the weight of that command? Does that take away when we're going, okay, how do I live as a Christian husband? He says, here's directions. Turn left and walk this way. Walk in a way that you love your wife as Christ loved the church. Do you see the direction of that? You're not going to perfect it. None of us have perfected it. That's why we need grace. And we need not just grace to save us, but sustaining grace. But God is kind enough to say, hey, I'm going to show you the direction of all. And that's what Paul's doing here. They had a Roman mindset. Citizenship was everything. In fact, did you know that slaves could become a citizen? It is a, a called manu, a manumission. And, and you could go from being a slave and a servant to being a Roman citizen with all its full rights. 
They knew that. The Philippians understood this. So when Paul uses, hey, live like a citizen, do you think that those people that that before maybe had a mindset of slavery because they had been born into maybe servanthood and they had been a slave all their life and all of a sudden they become a citizen, do you think that their mind needs to change? Yeah. Yeah, you're a citizen now. You don't live like a servant anymore. You're a citizen. And with that comes rights and expectations. That's what Paul's saying here. One of the constant conversations that we have in men's discipleship is that constant reminder that we are saved by grace and grace alone. But also that we have been called to something. We've been called from the darkness into the light. We've been called from a life where we are slaves to sin. Now we are slaves to, to Christ. It's not just escaping, hey, when I die, I don't have to go to that place. Because I've heard it's going to be hot. And I get to go to this good place. And I heard that the fishing is great. And the whole thing isn't about just where you're going to spend eternity. I mean, that's a big factor. Let's not fool ourselves. But if the only understanding that you have of what it means to be a Christian is that you get to go to heaven, you've missed the call of the New Testament. And you're going to miss the directional call that God continues to give through Paul and Peter and other writers about this is how you live as a Christian. Look at, look at verse 29 and 30 real quick. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says, count on suffering. Hey, part of this directional call, living a life worthy of the gospel, he said, expect some suffering to count on it. But notice what he says in verse 29, how he describes that challenge. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He said, he uses that word granite. Do you see that word granite? This is where, again, when we say the Greek word, we're not trying to be impressive. Believe me, I promise you we're not. But the Greek words sometimes really have a lot of weight that we miss in English translations. And that word granite means to grant as a favor. Now, how does that change things? It has been granted to you as a favor to suffer for Christ. How does that change it from, okay, granted, life's going to be hard. The direction that you take for Jesus Christ as you live out this Christ life is going to be hard. That's one thing just to say, expect bumps and troubles. But when you go back and, and he says, for it has been granted, this is a gift that God has actually given you. When was the last time that you were suffering and persecuted and you felt like, man, thank you, God, what a wonderful gift. That it costs you something, maybe even with a best friend, or in the workplace, or at school, or with your family. And that you're living for Christ actually had an expense upon you. I don't know that too many times at that point I'm going, hey, thank you, what a gift. Yeah. For next birthday, I want this. And yet that's the term that Paul uses here, and he means it sincerely. He's not just be flattering with words. He says, this is a gift. 
Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you might also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. In a day of Christian convenience, folks, please understand that God's call is Christian commitment. You're not saved by the level of your commitment. You're not even sustained by the level of your commitment. You don't live a committed life. It's not like God said, well, you know, you were supposed to do 100 things, you did 99, you don't get to come to heaven. Now we're saved and secure in the work of Jesus Christ and that alone. But will you please, please grasp, understand, embrace that this life, this being a citizen of heaven, this carrying the name of Christ is a high calling. And God asks us to walk in a way, live in a way that shows worth to that citizenship. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, this morning as we begin to uh, to really apply this and understand it in our own hearts and our own lives, Father. Father, I, I pray that you would first give us theological correctness and understanding that we would grasp that there's nothing that we could ever do to save ourselves. We are 100% dependent upon that finished work of Christ. But Father, we live in a day and age when we've put so much emphasis on what we want. So much emphasis on our own happiness and what makes us happy. Father, when we read these words to to live in a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel, Father, that brings conviction to my heart. When I believe that, Father, you have granted unto me the ability to suffer for the things I believe in, Father, that this is not a punishment, but it's actually a blessing that you've granted, you've shown us favor to give us this ability. Father, will you change my heart and my mind to align it in that kind of walk so that tomorrow and this day and weeks to come, I don't see so much that it's a sacrifice, but Father, I see it as an act of worship to show your worthiness. So Father, we love you. We thank you. Father, help us to live out a life that is going in a direction and that those that would be around us, Father, and we don't do it to impress others, but that it would be obvious to others that we live a directed life purposely reflecting our citizenship that is now in heaven. Father, for anyone that would be here this morning, Father, and, and, and they've, they've never, they know about you and they would even say that you're the son of God and that Jesus died on the cross, but they've never placed their trust in that. Father, will you give them the courage to, to come and speak to myself, one of the elders or a friend, a husband or a wife? I say, you know, I, I know about Christ, but I've never placed the trust to be made right with holy God in the work of Christ. Father, would you just allow them that boldness, that courage to do that even this day? We love you, Father. Father, help us to live this week 
in light of our citizenship, that, Father, everyone around us would know, hey, there goes a citizen of heaven. We love you and we thank you as we pray all this in the hope that is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.